Joe Dowling sat down with moderator David Diamond for a one-on-one interview in January of 2000. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Well, yeah, the dance act sequence should be really, really effective. Um, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Um, for the purpose of the table, just a formal introduction. Uh, I'm David Diamond, Executive Director of Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation. I'm very pleased to be at Chicago Shakespeare Theater this morning. Thank you, Barbara, and uh, the rest of your staff for being so welcoming to us this morning. Um, in case you would like some more information about the foundation and our programs, or the union and their programs, right down here, uh, the Stage Director's Handbook, the Order of the Journal, um, and uh, information about FSTC membership and programs. Welcome. <laughs> um, we're going to spend some time this morning talking to Joe Dowling, and um, we're going to keep it pretty informal, so if you uh, have questions as we go along, feel free to chime in. Um, but we're going to spend some time talking about Joe's background and his process as a director. Okay, so I'm very pleased and uh, proud to present Joe Dowling. Um, what was your childhood experience of going to the theater? When did you first go to the theater? There's a tradition in Ireland uh, every Christmas, Christmas pantomime, which is originally a British tradition, but it's from Ireland. And uh, it was a gift that we used to get to children from an uncle at visits. I was very small. That was the first time I went to the theater. And there's a great family story that uh, my first note that I gave to the actor was at the age of about three. <laughs> when uh, watching the Christmas pantomime, this man came along on playing the villain, and sort of the audience boo and hissed the villain, cheered the heroes, all that sort of stuff. And this man went, ha ha! audience and I started to cry and my mother said, looking at the program, said, it's not, it's, 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 it's just an actor, it's, it's Mr. Fitzgerald is his name. And I said very loudly and very clearly, well, I don't like Mr. Fitzgerald, <laughs> causing poor Mr. Fitzgerald to lose it. Oh, no. Apparently he had to exit. <laughs> so, uh, as I said, that was the first note I ever gave an actor. And... Um, so it's a tradition of theater going from the time you were very young. Well, yeah, I mean, that was, that was the annual. My parents both were avid theater goers. There's no history of theater in the family, but they were avid theater goers, particularly at the Abbey, which was the Irish National Theater. Was, 
uh, strong tradition among Dublin families of Saturday night was and that lasted right through many years. Uh, and and um, so that was the starting point. I, I think the first interest that I ever expressed in there was uh, coming home from those Christmas pantomimes and playing all parts of every single one fairy. And uh, it was my grandmother who, uh, when I was about six, said, this is more than just somebody playing, this is a child playing, this, this, is a, this is something. And I walked into my first drama class when I was seven. Uh, from the day I walked in to today, I'd never done anything else or wanted to do. It was that instant. It was, a, it was an instant recognition that I had is that a, a regular school? A regular no, it was, a, it, was, it was after school. It was a sort of um, children's uh, drama class. It was, it was a very small thing my grandmother found and uh, sent me to. But the teacher that, that was there, she was an extraordinary woman. Uh, her name was Ina Burke, and she trained people like Milo O'Shea, uh, Renda Fricker, Many, many of people who had sort of those are the two whose names immediately come to mind to people who made their, their names here, but many, many people. She, she just had an extraordinary gift. As many people find, I, I think it's, it's invariably the case. It's one person that, that you know, if you find the right person at a very young age, uh, it, it, it can be such an extraordinary inspiration. She was the inspiration. What was your first professional acting experience? I, it was, I, I left uh, high school in 1966, and that year was the uh, uh, 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising. Huge, huge national celebration. And there were a series of plays being done to commemorate this event. And uh, someone asked me, I, I don't know, again, through kind of contacts, would I take part in play, and I, and I didn't realize I was going to be paid. It never occurred to me that I would be paid. So the, I did it because I wanted to do it, of course. And on the Friday, they handed me five pounds, and I thought, this. So it was a rather <laughs> an unexpected bonus to be paid to do this. Suddenly. Um, but then my first real professional work, I, 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 I was um, a student at University College Dublin, um, and also a member of the Abbey Theatre both at the same time. So I'm probably one of the few, I'm sure a few people in the world who has put themselves through college by being an actor. Um, but I joined, I, 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 was, I joined the Abbey Theatre in 1967, um, and I became a member of its company the same year. I did not tell them that I was also a student at University College Dublin, nor did I tell the professors at University College Dublin that I was a member of the Abbey Theatre. And it was interesting that culture of the university was such that obviously none of the professors ever attended theatres. They might have seen me on the stage. They never did. So I wasn't rumbled until uh, close to, to the time I was to take my degree when it became clear that one or other would have to, would have to go. And I went to the artistic director of the theatre at the time and I confessed all that I had been a student for the previous three years and that I now needed to take my finals and would he mind not casting me in the next play? And he said, sure. As easy as that, I went. Oh, okay, that's easy. <laughs> and uh, I, I did my final. So, so what were you reading in, in English? Oh, English. 
so I was, uh, I was living this extraordinary double life where I would uh, go to college in the day in between rehearsals. I didn't attend very many of the lectures. Uh, catch up in the middle of the night after a performance and eventually came out with a reasonable BA and uh, a career as an happy actor. You're one of the youngest members of the company. I was. Uh, there were a group of us at the time who, uh, who were taken into the company. Time of Renaissance at the Abbey. The Abbey had gone through a, a strange period of its history. It, it, uh, the, the original theatre burnt down in 1952, and they lived in, in Babylonian isolation in uh, a theatre called the Queen's Theatre, which was way over the outside the city and was an old music hall. And so it went through a very serious, kind of serious period of decline. And by the time it reopened in 1966, they really had no young actors. So this, the, 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 a new artistic director did a sweep of all the young actors I could find to start to revitalize the company, and I was one of those. So I was very lucky to be part of a really remarkable company. And then I stayed with the Abbey for a very long time. I was, I was 18 years man and boy with the Abbey. As an actor? As an actor, then as, then I, but I was always terribly bossy, and I was always terribly opinionated. And so in, in the land of the, the blind, the one-eyed man is king, so there was nobody around um, who had any interest in directing, simply wasn't part of the Irish theatre. The director in those days was known as the producer. It was a term that was uh, and really just was somebody who sat out front and in a sense became a sort of super stage manager. You know, you locked the play on a Monday, you learned the, the part, you, you opened the following week, and, and nobody said anything to you about interpretation, about how the play might be. About, and with the result that a lot of the work was pretty awful. Is there no kind of physical or vocal training? Not at all. Physical or vocal training? So swallowing a pint of Guinness was the only vocal training <laughs> most people had. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a terribly, you know, I, the, the, the tradition and the history of the Abbey Theatre is fascinating. And its early years were undoubtedly uh, groundbreaking, both in terms of the playwrights it produced and in terms of the actresses it produced. And, and like the Moscow Art Theatre, it defined a style of acting that was to become uh, a, a model for many um, companies and countries around the world. But it, it had gone into and, and uh, was part of a serious decline. I mean, for, for many, many years, it was a, it was a national joke. Uh, and, and other companies had taken over. And so when, when we joined, a lot of us, the young people that came in the late 60s, it, and, and they just moved to a new building, and there was a sense of hope, a sense of, a sense of optimism. That was when we started to say, we really have to do something about the, the quality of the productions. We can't just put them on. And we have to do something. And, and even though I was in my early 20s at the time, uh, I was 19 when I joined the company, but in my early 20s by the time I sort of, uh, could get my head out of the university and into the theater, I, I mean, at that point I realized, as we all did, that it was kind of um, something radical had to change. And, and uh, I was one of the first voices to say that. This has got to change, and we've got to change it in a particular way, and then we've got to encourage people to direct. So the, 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 the then artistic director was a man called Hugh Hunt, who had run the old Dick, and he had started the Sydney, uh, the company, the Sydney Opera. He was a very distinguished, he was then professor of drama at Manchester University, and he came as artistic director with the express task of jolting the place out of this terrible lethargy to come into. And uh, he, I, I said this to him one day, I said, you know, it's, it's essential that we start, first of all, we start getting 
directors and secondly start appealing to young people. You start going out and developing audiences. And he said, well, do it. And I went, oh. He said, you know, you, you're saying this, but do it. What was the first play you directed? It was a children's play. The first play I ever directed was a children's play. It was, it was called um, Serpent Prince. Over 30 years old. And it, it, uh, it was because I, there was a second space within the, uh, within the Abbey called Peacock, still there, a bit like this small studio space. And I said, you know, no child had ever crossed the door of the Abbey for many years. No, no young person thought about going to the Abbey. It was just something that your parents did. So we, we started a children's theatre company within the Abbey. And we brought plays both in the Peacock, and then we took the plays out. It was the first time in Irish theatre that the notion of linking theatre and education had actually happened. And, and we brought work out, so we started. We were very influenced by the O'Brien Way, and there was, a, there was a whole movement in Britain in the, the late 60s towards theatre and education, the, uh, the Bolton, the Octagon Bolton, the theatres of Manchester. It was a huge thing of, it was all part of that wonderful sort of um, 60s energizing social consciousness that the uh, that, that was so much part of the British, the British system, and we, we we learned from that. And take theatre to the people. Take theatre out to the people. Talk to people about why theatre is important. Make theatre important. Stop farting around with costumes and, and uh, just get where the people are. And, and and we did that. And we were very radical. In, we weren't at all radical. We thought we were. Um, and we changed not one single mind about theatre. <laughs> but what we did do was develop a whole group of, of young performers who, when we, when we brought the work back into the Abbey, it was much more, they were much more alert than, than they had been before. So it was, a much, it was a kind of an internal thing that was more important than what we did externally. But that was, so, so fairly quickly after that, uh, directing, I, I, I kind of liked it. I kind of liked the fact that you could say something. And then somebody do it. I've been <laughs> saying it in rehearsal as an actor for years, and nobody had paid the slightest amount of attention. So it was quite nice that they actually would do occasionally would do it. Well, how did I you learn how to to be a director? I mean, watching, listening. I, I, I'm I'm a passionate believer in training. I have been and continue to be a passionate believer in training, particularly for actors. I have to say that I think directors need the hands-on experience much more than they need classroom. They need to be in the room where actors are, and they also need so many things that, 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 that you just about common sense and practicality and organization and so on that, that you can't learn from any, uh, from any studies. And that's why the best training that I could get was to spend time as an actor, uh, actually watching bad directors try to screw us up and just go, this is, this is, this is not. I think that was the best training, was working with bad directors. <laughs> and, and you became ultimately the artistic director of the company, right? I did. I, I moved fairly fast. And again, it's an indication, to say, in, in not necessarily an indication of any personal brilliance, but an indication of disarray within the company. That, that so maybe a combination of it. Uh, no, I, I think it's, it, I mean, it's not a false modesty. It, it, uh, it was very clear that the company needed serious and radical and there was a man called Tomas Makana uh, who gave it that. He was a very brilliant, dynamic uh, 
leader of the, of the theater who saw that. And he, uh, because, as I say, I, I was very active and very, I've always been blessed, thank God, with an enormous energy. Just have had it, it's part of who I am. And I was there 24 hours a day, doing things, making things happen, talking to people. And he, he said, you know, come with And he became artistic director in 1973. And he said, come in and run that small theater, run the people. I was an actor in the company, and I had done this children's work, but I had never run a theater. I'd never, no experience. He said, I'm just throwing it to you. Do it. Um, and he, he, he trusted me at the age of 23 to, to run studio theater in, within the, the Abbey Complex. And I, I immediately brought in a company that I'd been working with, the Young People's Thing. I, we, we programmed from from breakfast through to, to, to midnight shows. We would have morning talks, we'd have concerts at lunchtime, we'd have afternoon sessions, and we'd have evening sessions, and then a late night show. We I, I simply just it, it generated so much activity within the theater that it became the place to be in Dublin. You just had to go to the theater. Saturday afternoon, Tin Lizzie, the group Tin Lizzie that became so famous after it started, because they were, somebody was a friend of somebody's, and we said, oh, you know, this is a great group. And they came in, and, and we would do these Saturday afternoon concerts. And in the middle of it, we'd have an improvisation session. Then that evening, we'd do a show. And then late at night, somebody would do another one. And it was just a natural matter of, of having the energy, generating the activity, and not being afraid to fail. And that was the thing that, that, that and it's something that I think has lasted with me. I'm never afraid to fail. Failure is not a, I mean, there's, uh, a line in Brian Fields Bay Translations where he says, confusion is not an ignoble condition. And, and it, it's been a mantra for me uh, ever since reading it. Because I think confusion, not always getting what you think you're going to get, not being afraid of uh, going towards something. That, that, that was definitely in that period of my life, um, strong characteristics. But fairly quickly, uh, the, 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 the Abbey Board, um, started to change, and, and the old guard were being removed. Now, you have to understand that the Abbey Board is very different to the board of an American theatre. It was a political board, and nominated by the government, because it's a national theatre, um, nominated from within, which is self-perpetuating oligarchy, really, and, and, and uh, uh, it, it ended up being a, a real stone around the neck of the theatre. It started to shift and change, and they wanted um, something very different. So at the age of uh, 27, they asked me to run the whole place, which I did for seven years. And during that period, um, did you direct a lot of the plays yourself? Yeah. yeah. And what were you learning in those early days about what was important as, as a director, beyond what you learned being directed by bad directors earlier? Once you started doing it yourself, what did you really learn about the process? Of it? Well, I think that uh, the, the process to, to a large extent, I find the process differs with each show. It depends very much on the kind of material. You've got to be true to the material. Uh, and one of the things that, that was very exciting about my early years at Artistic Director Gallery was that it also corresponded with the start of a relationship with Brian Freed. I mean, a relationship that's meant more to me than any other relationship that I've had in, in my career. Uh, he is an extraordinary writer. He's also really meticulous man in terms of his ideas and attitudes towards how 
a play gets presented on stage. And I learned so much from working with him. We did a series of plays together in the, the late 70s, early 80s that uh, included me doing my first production in the United States, Translations. And uh, one of the things that Brian taught me and that I learned very quickly from working with his work is, is that everything must come out of the text. You cannot, if you take the text and, and you twist it and turn it and make it the, the director's view, then essentially what you, you should do is go in and write the play yourself. The, the, the notion that um, first and foremost is the writer, uh, and after that everything flows from that, is the, was the, the most important part of the learning curve. When you were working together with him on, on those plays, did you ever give him you know, your feedback about the writing and that caused the writing to change? No. That's not something you ever do with Brian Friel. And, and I don't, I mean, he, he used to say, uh, when the play leaves my desk, it says what I wanted to say. And if you say to me, it doesn't say it uh, properly, my answer to you is, your job as the interpreter of it is to find a way to make it say what I want to say. Now, that may sound like an arrogant thing on the part of a writer, and it is, and I think a writer require that uh, belief and that that arrogance. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's stuck with me as one of the, the, the most important things. Your job as a director is not to write the play. The job as a director is to find a way through the actors, through the um, design, and through the work to say what the playwright wants to say. Now, if, you, if, if, if you're confused by what the playwright wants to say and the playwright's not in the room, then of course interpretation is required. But if you actually have the playwright there, then the job of the, the director is to work with the playwright to make certain that the play is heard. That was, that was a terribly important lesson and, and, and applies to me when I, when I work in, in classic places as well. But, but Brian's view that, that he holds rather extreme views, I mean, in terms of directors, he sees them as being absolutely worthless. He talks about the director as a, uh, the equivalent of a bus conductor. And he said, we were all told that we could live without bus conductors, and then they, they abolished bus conductors and the buses still kept going. And uh, he, he regards directors as an absolute. He says he's never seen a production where a director changed anything that was that wasn't there from the beginning from the actors. Really. Now, I don't happen to agree with him on that. I, I think the directors are vitally important part of any any uh, theatrical enterprise. But I think what has happened to to, to a very large extent the, the kind of notion of directors' theatre, where directors really have become the centre of so many productions. I, I resist that, and I have always resisted that. I think the writer is the center, that creative voice that looks at the blank page and finds a way of, and as it says in, in Summer Night's Dream, uh, you know, turning airy nothings, giving a local habitation and a name to airy nothings. I mean, the notion that there is nothing there, they create something. That I respect that to such an extent, and I respect the role of the writer, um, that I, I'm not afraid to be an interpreter. In the rehearsal process with Brian or with other writers working on new plays that you've worked with, do they ever rewrite the play during the rehearsal process, or was it come, when it comes to you, with Brian, Brian, it's finished and with, that's it? With you don't Brian, touch it's it? finished. You don't touch it. And that, I mean, many a director has perished on that particular sword. <laughs> you just don't. And you learn that. And you learn to respect that. Now, with, 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 with some younger writers, and I've worked with a lot of writers, uh, with some younger writers, yes, they the discussion can be more um, uh, collegiate and, and out of that comes. But I'm always terribly careful, I, both as a, as, a, as a director and as an artistic director, 
dramaturgical function. I've always been terribly careful to, to make clear that I, I, it's not my job or my desire to write the play for the writer. It can't be. And if it is, what so often happens with compliant writers who say, oh, this is a great idea, that's a great idea, it becomes a hodgepodge. It doesn't become a single voice actually saying something important and articulating a theme or an idea. And that's why uh, O'Brien has instilled in me and, and, I, and, and what I've learned so much about directing plays from, from uh, working with him is the, the more you delve into the text and the more you respect the text, um, the, the stronger the production will be. If you move away from it and you don't... I, I, I go to so many plays and I think... That's a superficial reading. Whoever directed this play has not actually examined what that line said because the actor, actors are wonderfully uh, open. I find 99.9% .9 of the actors I've worked with are open to directorial uh, advice. Help. They're not. There's this sort of notion that, they, that the director and actor uh, are sort of somehow at a, on opposite sides of the divide. It hasn't been my experience. Uh, but unless you're prepared to actually delve with the actor into the text, you get the sort of superficiality sometimes. What do you think the role of a, a dramaturg is, and do you see a necessity, necessity for one in the creation, especially of an, I'm not talking about what they might do on a, a classic play, but on a new play in development? I, I, I'm still trying to work out what the dramaturg does and what the value of a dramaturg is. Chief Dramaturg got to kill me because he's a wonderful man and a dear friend, and he's done a fantastic job in, in working on the research and the background to, to plays. But the notion that a, 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 a dramaturg comes to a writer and says, "This is how your play should sound," I haven't, I haven't yet found out how playwrights manage not to kill them. <laughs> I think dramaturgs are very important in research area uh, of classical work. It's fabulous when you're a good dramaturg uh, and you're doing a classic play to, to have all that laid out for a director, for the actors. A, a really vital function. In terms of new plays, I'm not sure. When you were, um, you worked at the, um, the uh, Abbey for how many years was it? It was 18 years. I, I took two years out to become the artistic director of a touring company, which was set up by the government theater outside of Dublin. And two years of just director of that before I became artistic director of the Abbey. But overall, and then, I was years. And then you went to the gaiety. Right? Well, I, I resigned from the Abbey in, in a kind of uh, what, what became a major uh, issue, uh, issue of control. Uh, the Abbey board decided, after many years of my being there, that they wanted to get more control back. They wanted to be able dictate to the artistic director programming and, and actors. And, and I said, no, you can't do that. Appointed an artistic director. And it was the first time that, that anyone had stood up to that board. They had always been used to getting their own way. And it was the first time anyone stood up to them. And, and when I took it as far as resignation, they didn't believe me. They thought I wouldn't go. And I said, the theater needs clear leadership. And if it's going to start getting this divided leadership between the artistic director and the board, then it's going to fail. Failed in the past for that very reason, and I'm not going to I'm not going to be party to that. So I resigned in, a, in, in what was at the time 1995 a major 
major crisis for the Abbey, major. Because the press in Dublin, who had been, and still continue to be, incredibly critical of the Abbey, it's, it's like a, a national Aunt Sally gets knocked down every time. Um, but they suddenly saw what I was saying, how important it was, and they got behind me. Uh, the board then, of course, got more entrenched by virtue of the attacks from the press. And uh, they went through, I think I'm writing this, I think they went through eight artistic directors in the, the next 10 years before Nixon took over in 1995 and became uh, probably the best artistic director the Abbey's ever had. How was your experience at the Gaiety different? Well, you see, the Gaiety was a different thing altogether because the Gaiety, uh, the Gaiety is the oldest commercial theater in Dublin and it was the place where I'd first seen those pantomimes when I was a small child. So there was a wonderful serendipity about being invited to go onto the Gaiety board, which was my first. I had actually decided to leave Ireland after the Abbey um, situation because I looked around and thought, there's nothing here for me. I mean, the Abbey is in many ways you know, the pinnacle of theatrical experience in Ireland, though there were lots of reservations about that. But I, I decided there's nothing for me to do here. I, and and uh, so I was about to leave when I got a call and said, would you come onto the board of the Gaiety? Now, the board of the Gaiety was very different. It was a small three-person board to run a commercial theater with a manager there. And the, the, the guy who, who invited me, since dead, Ian Conroy was his name, he said, I want somebody who will have an understanding of, of plays because the theater had become largely about musicals and variety shows. And it's a 1,500-seat commercial house. So it was largely about those things, and they had no drama section of it. And he said, you know, we're putting a lot of money into the infrastructure of the theater. I'd like somebody on the board. So he said, it'll only be a part-time thing. We won't need you all, all the time. But as ever, I don't get into something that I, that I don't try and take over. It's, it's <laughs> terrible, terrible failure. But anyway, I, I, w I went to the Gaiety uh, on the board. And within months, we had decided we were going to do a drama program for a year. We were going to try just plays. We opened with Death of a Salesman, 1986, uh, with a wonderful actor, Ray McAnally, playing Billy Nolan. And uh, it, it, it sold, nobody had, and, and there was another, another guy on the board of the gate who said to me, you're going to do a play with death in the title and you expect people to come? And I said, oh, you know, it's a great play. <laughs> <laughs> but they came, they did, and it, it opened a whole new era for the gaiety of uh, suddenly being seen as a playhouse again, which it hadn't been for years. And we did a series of plays there uh, for about two or three years. And, and, but they were commercial. They had to. They had, there was no subsidy. There was no funding. It was entirely on the basis of. And I became a commercial manager. I became, uh, which I had never been before. Became, you directed that production. I directed that most of the productions there. Yeah. And then what um, brought you to the United States? Was translations? The first production I did in the United States was translations of Brian Fried's play in Manhattan Theatre Club in 1981. How did you find back. the experience uh, of working? of American audiences or American actors versus uh, Irish? Is there a different experience for you as well, a director? Well, you know, I've, I've always said actors are actors are actors. It doesn't matter what their nationality. Actors are actors. They want to create, they want to perform, they want to, to, to do the best job they can with the role they've got. And the, the training was different, obviously. The instinct is, is, is not different. Um, I, I've, always, I've always loved working really love that part of the process. I love the rehearsals. I love the, the ability to listen to and to, to contribute, to talk about how to watch a performance grow. 
I'm a great believer that you give the actor absolute freedom to create. And then at a certain point, when that, that creation, you start to edit, help them to shape and edit. Um, and I find American actors and Irish actors are exactly the same in the desire to, to, to allow that editing to happen. So my first experience of doing translations, it was, it, it was wonderful. It, opened, it just felt really right. I didn't, I didn't have any sense, oh, I'm in a foreign place, this is a foreign. It just felt right, absolutely right. Now, I came back in 1985, uh, just before I resigned from the Abbey, I came back to the Roundabout Theatre where I did a production of Playboy the Western World which has to be the worst production ever seen in the history of that play. It was a bomb. It just failed from day one. Partly casting, partly the crisis I was going through back in the alley was, was just taking up so much of my energy and so much of my time. And partly the theatre itself was moving. The theatre was moving into the Union Square house that they've now eventually abandoned onto their Broadway house now. But, but that was, was the first production in. And things like heating hadn't been sorted out. Um, I know the fire officer condemned the set on the, the day of our first preview or something. And it was just a set series of awful disasters. So I, I left there and my agent said to me, you know, um, it'll be a long time really before you... Because the play, I mean, it was a pan. Right. Um, and he said, it'll be a long time before you'll be back in New York. Yeah. He was being friendly, I thought. But just saying, you know, don't, don't rely on getting a phone call from anyone <laughs> fairly soon. But I went back to Dublin anyway, and, and the crisis unfolded in the Abbey, and my life changed. And, and I, I, I really didn't think about the United States or coming back to the United States at all. It was to London, I think. And then I did a production in Dublin of um, Sean O'Casey's play, Juno and Haycock, um, which I did at the Gate Theatre, which is second. It's the Abbey Theatre and the Gate Theatre. The Gate smaller than the Abbey, but it's also state-subsidized, and it's also uh, does a lot of of uh, both new work and classical work. And it's been run, it's run then and continues to be run by a, a, a remarkable man, Michael Colvin, who's a, who's a visionary, uh, really remarkable leader of the theatre. And he, uh, he, he, when I left the Abbey, he called me and he said, what do you want to do at the gate? Just come and tell me. And I did a production of Light Spirit there. And then, then we talked again. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I've, done, I've worked on O'Casey a lot. O'Casey's a big passion of mine. Great. And, and I said, I'd love to have a go at Juno and the Pickup in a smaller space. I'd done it in the Abbey. And I said, I'd love to go in a smaller space. And there's this actor, Donald McCann, who, who died last year, um, who was, without question, the greatest actor I've ever worked with. Without question. And, and Donal and I had worked together a couple of times. And he said, I'd love, we've worked many times together, but I said, I'd love to do it with Donald. I'd love to do Juno and the Pickup with him. And Michael said, yes, let's do it, and we put it together. It opened in Dublin to the sort of reviews that if one had written them oneself, one would be embarrassed. They were extraordinary. There were lines literally down the street in the morning afterwards, and those lines stayed for the entire run. We ran it for, I think it was overall about six months in Dublin, which is unheard of, because it's a small city, it's just unheard of. It was a phenomenal success, a defining moment, certainly in my career. Uh, and in many ways a defining moment in, um, in, in the play's history. People said this in production. Now, uh, that, it's a very interesting, that whole phenomenon of that is very interesting, but that changed my life because we took it to the Edinburgh Festival the following year. And at the Edinburgh Festival, it was a man called Martin Siegel who was looking for plays for the first 
International Theatre Festival in New York. Right. And he fell in love with Judith. And he invited him. And under the auspices of Circle in the Square, we brought it to New York at the John Golden Theatre in 1988. Uh, again, to notices that just were extraordinary. Like Rich's notice was just extraordinary. It only played for three weeks in New York because of the festival. We couldn't get an extension of the visas and all of the rest of it. It only played for three weeks, but it became a legend. People still say to me, oh, that you thing. I, I, I almost saw it. <laughs> you did see it, did you? You, you saw it in New York. Yeah. It, 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 an astonishing, for us, coming from Dublin, it was an astonishing story. And um, the, someone who did see it was Zelda Fishhamper from the Union Stage in Washington, who called me the next day after she'd seen it and said, this is one of the most profound experiences in my theater-going life. You must come and do it in Washington. And I said, no. Couldn't. The American cast? No. It's not a chance. This is a, this is a you know, experience unique into itself. So she said, think about it. Love to work at Tristan Theatre, but I don't think this is the way. So Zelda's, uh, she, she doesn't give up. She's, uh, she's one of the most persistent and wonderful battlers. And she called me again and she said, Have you thought about it? And I said, Well, yes, but I still don't think it'll work. She said, And anyway, I said, I'm not available. I'm doing such and such. She said, I'll change the dates. So then she said, Will you come and visit Arena and bring your designer? Designer Frank Halpern thought has actually done some nice dream here. He has been a collaborator of mine for 20, 20 years. And we, we, we work almost constantly together. So I said to Frank, will we go and see this theater anyway and get a trip to Washington out of it? Um, so we went, and the two of us walked into the arena stage. And I always remember we were standing there, and we both looked at each other and went, yeah, we have to do it. <laughs> it's just such a remarkable space. and, and the energy of that space was so right. Frank did a, a, an extraordinary um, work on the set to make it work for the, for the round. In fact, he won a Helen Hayes Award for it. It was so amazing. And we did it. We did it. With an American company. With an American company. Yeah. And uh, it was a big, big success in Washington. But that started, by doing that there, it started a relationship between Arena Stage and myself. And I went back. Uh, four times for each stage, and then I don't work at Victor in, in Washington as well. In the meantime, the roundabout, having been reformed under Todd Haynes, uh, invited me to come into Philadelphia. Here I come there. So suddenly, and then Bob Brustein asked me to come to ART and do um, Touch of the Poet. So suddenly, I had a kind of an American career starting. And, and that was unexpected and not looked for. It, it happened out of Juno the Baker. But it, when it happened, I, I, I didn't resist it. It seemed, it felt right. It felt good. But the thing that wasn't good, and that I had to change, was the, was the commuting. Commuting across the Atlantic. Yes. And living out of boxes. Any freelance director does that. Lives out of boxes, going from one city to another. I wasn't unique in that. But, but the fact that, you know, every single thing I owned had to be transferred to an American voltage was one of the key sort of reasons for coming to live in this country so that I could long last be able to have an electric shaver that worked but um, 
apart from that, I mean, the actual wear and tear on family life, the wear and tear on me, I just thought, well, a decision has to be made here. And, uh, and, and I decided that I was going to live in Ireland. I was going to go back to Ireland. And, and my wife and I talked about how we would, what we would do, and, and there was a possibility of becoming a professor of drama. Trinity was a vague possibility. I sort of thought, well, I would see that, and I would go into academic theater. And uh, the next thing is, while I was making that decision, I got a call from Greg Kendall, who's the um, headhunter for the Guthrie. How long have you been again? How long have you been at the Guthrie now? Since '95. Let's talk a little bit about um, your process in working on classical productions, classical plays. Um, when you, how do you begin your rehearsal process? Do you spend time uh, around the table? Do you work on text explication with the actors? How, for you, how does that process work? I, I work around the table for the first. Depending on the length of time we have to rehearse, if you've got a four or five week rehearsal, I will I will work around the table for a week. Um, exploring, listening, reading the scene again, talking about it. Particularly if you're doing Shakespeare, I think it's terribly important that everybody hears it and hears what um, you know, what each scene is, is saying and how how the, the, the actors are reading it. Um, what I do before I finish around the table, and this is something that I've developed over the last couple of years, and, and I like it. It's something I like. Once you've done all that work around the tables, and, and, and so, it's so interesting because every day you go back in and people tend to sit in the same places, and it becomes a little academic, sort of studious, and people have their, their lexicals, and they're looking them up, and they have their, their, their dictionaries, and there's a real feeling of the, of the library about it. So what I do on the last day, before we go away from, uh, from the, the table, is to take away all the tables, so that they sit in a circle, and to say to the actors, now, you don't have to move if you don't feel you want to. If you feel like moving in the scene, get up and do it, just wherever you want to go. And invariably, it takes about two scenes. Everybody just sits there with the book and they, doesn't, they don't do it. And then somebody does it. And from then comes a staging. By the end of that rehearsal, there's a basic staging. That they figured out, the actors have just totally. discovered. Because they're coming from the text to, they're not concerning themselves. They're, they know they don't have to, but they do. And... A, a, a basic staging emerges that then the next day start to build. Do you come in or have you developed prior to the first even reading a sort of a concept or an idea about the production? Well, it depends on the, I mean, for instance, Midsummer Night's Dream, which I've done many times, it, 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 it has its, it, its stamp and it has its, it, it, what it is. And so when you walk in and start talking to actors, you can't pretend that it's all going to be totally. Finding a way of doing it that, that, that accords to what you think, but it, 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 if it's a play that I haven't done before, I try to keep as open as possible. Concept, you know, the, the design to a very large extent it will, will, will dictate the concept. So that work is done. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, when you you do a play like Midsummer Night's Dream and you do it several times, um, you're sitting down with your designers for the first time. What kind of how do you talk to them about the play? What kind of language do you use to talk about 
what the play is about for you and how you want to see them or what you, you know, how you sort of encourage their work at the beginning, at the outset? It, it, again, it depends. I've worked with a lot of different designers. As I say, my chief collaborator uh, in my career has been Frank Calvin Flood. Who's, who's, uh, uh, so by now, of course, when Frank and I meet to talk about a play, it, it's usually we talk about everything else except the play, but in the context of which that shorthand of knowing each other as well as we do, um, actually we get a lot of work done, even though it doesn't feel that way. If I'm working with a new designer I haven't actually worked before, I tend to want to get to know him or her. I tend to want to work more with the person than with ideas, so that the, out of those, out of that knowledge comes a concept of the play and an idea of the play that's about people and not about right angles and design ideas. Because if, if, if the theatre is not about the interaction of people, um, it's about nothing. It can never be solely about um, concept, ideas, intellectual pursuits. It has to be about the, the way in which people relate to each other. And, and that, for me, is essential. So if I'm working with a new designer, I like to know the person or to find... Now, out of that, hopefully, in those discussions will come some basic ground plan, and that great basic ground plan um, then gets built into a model and all the rest of it happens. But it's a, it's a very important starting point for me that I'm working with the person and not, you know, not just the cold idea. Do you ask them what they think the play yes. is about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I want to find out what their feelings about the play is, what their feelings about other things are, uh, and, and then... The discussion, so it's 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 a hopefully a much more productive discussion than simply starting at scene one and working our way through by talking generally and finding. It. I'm not. I make it sound as if it's a very um, a totally random thing. It's not. I mean, you you do end up um, deciding on, on many of many things that, that are going to make the play work. You do you do end up working with the, the designers on detail, but much more important to me is that the relationship between the designers and myself come about the people rather than I would never work with a designer that I didn't like. Just never. It wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't happen. Has it ever happened that the, the uh, realization of the physical production in spite of all your conversations comes out to be something that either wasn't what you thought or doesn't work for the play? Or, oh, many times. And, and how do you address that with the designer at that point? Sometimes it's too late when you know, when you realize it, and even with Frank and myself. I mean, even with Frank and myself, even though we we this wonderful shorthand and we do work together extraordinarily well, there's times we we, we both realize, oh, didn't, that didn't work. We didn't get that to work, and, and sometimes it's too late because one. I mean, that's the the, the problem with with the process that we all go through as, as directors is you have to do in order for the shops to build sets. You have to do that process before you ever get to the play. You know, your, your work with the actresses when you get to the play. You find out things. And 99% of the work that one does, the, the design is already there. The costume design is there. The set design is there. I wish we worked in a situation, and I, know, I don't know how to resolve this, but I wish we worked in a situation where day one was really day one, where everybody could be in the room, designers, actors, director, and where the whole thing could evolve and emerge from the collective decisions taken collective personalities. But that's not always the case. That's not ever the case in my experience. In my experience, it always is that you start with the 
design process. And that design process is done in a vacuum because you don't have actors yet. And actors are the center of the production. The, the, the production, any play is about the relationship between actor and audience. It can't be about anything else in terms of the process because people can sit and look at the set all night and if an actor doesn't walk onto the stage and say a line, it's, it isn't theater. Um, and so that, 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 that core relationship between director and actors very often excludes the designer because the designer has their work done and they've gone on to something else and they can drop in on rehearsal if they happen to be available, but they're not a central part of the actor's consciousness. Um, and and I, think that's a, I think that's a flaw in our, in our process and in our system. It's, it's not just here in this country, it's in Britain, it's in Ireland, it's everywhere else because of the pressures of, of uh, the profession. But that's a, a problem. Now, to try and rectify that, um, you know, that's why I can go back to the thing that it's, it's working with people that you feel an affinity with and it's finding a way of creating a shorthand so that the, the, the designer, um, when they do come in, feels welcomed into the process of the actors and there isn't that separation and so that things can change through the course of the, of the rehearsal process. But with, but with a lot of sets, you can't do that. You simply can't do it. It has to be built and it's built in a particular way and there you go. So, uh, but, you know, the the initial discussions with the designer uh, or with the designers, um, to to some extent, they shape so much of your thinking as well. Uh Because I don't have a bit, I I, I have a reasonably good visual imagination in some respects, but I don't have, if I look at a play first and start to read it, I don't see, I don't visualize it. I see the people, I see the personalities, I see the um, interaction between those people, I see the themes of the play, I see ideas, I I, I don't see it visually. So when somebody like Frank Flood comes along and says, why don't we try this, it it opens all kinds of new potential for me. And I use the designers, I rely very heavily on my designers. That's why I say I don't want to work with people that I don't actually like or respect, even though however talented they are. Because I can't have a, a rapport, and I have to have that. So I have to be able to say to a designer, help me here. This is what I'm thinking about this scene, and they can put it into a visual. So when the actors come into the process then, in the early rehearsals, do, do you um, sort of explain how the design came about and, and what the design is that they have to sort of... You try to, to, to explain that, yeah. I find it's quite interesting with actors. Uh, the first day, you know, you show them the model and everything. Wow, wow, it's great. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. And then you give a round of applause to the designer, and everybody's thrilled. And then they forget about the set totally. In the rehearsal room, they never think about the set. And then they go on stage and they go, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know it was going to be that size. Is that the, have I really got to walk up three steps here? Oh, my God. And, and, and have a whole relearning to do when they get into the art and stage. Um, but, 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 you know, obviously, as you work through the play, you try to to, to, to incorporate uh, the actor and the design and make the two marry. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's, a, it's, a, it's a not an exact science. And, and, and if it were, I think it probably wouldn't be as interesting. But, but it, it is, it, it, it can have um, terrible consequences if you haven't a clear idea before you start with the designer. You need a clear idea what want from the play. And then if the designer is creative, they can give you the visual implication and then you try and marry the two 
students to work with the actors. Getting back to the work with the actors more specifically, um, so you've had your uh, work around the table. They've sort of to get up at the end and really sort of sort of stage the piece. Um, and then through the next several weeks, how do you um, find yourself communicating with actors that may be coming from different kind of educational backgrounds and different training? Do you find um, uh, that you have to that you create a language that every that everybody can understand together, even if they come from different backgrounds? Or how do you uh, how much do you talk to the actors? Oh, I talk to the actors all the time, eight hours a day. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced a, you know, the different backgrounds and different levels of training. It, it, it's a kind of a marriage of all of those things that one has to do, rather than trying to flatten them out. I mean, it's terribly important to allow an actor to be who he or she is, as opposed to who you think they should be. As I said earlier, I love to see actors explore. I do, I, one rule with me, an absolutely golden rule, and I never change it. Nobody attends a rehearsal that's not there all the time. I don't like visitors. I don't believe in somebody coming into the rehearsal to see 10 minutes. Even an artistic director, I've told them, you don't, you don't come into my rehearsals. And the reason for that is simple. Once the door is closed, you're in that room. Anything that happens in that room is between the people in the room. And rehearsal is always a process of trial and error, a process of discovery, a process of... Of, of, and the rehearsal, the, the rehearsal day itself is, is complete within itself. It's not... I, I always say that, that rehearsal can be divided into two different things. One is the preparation for performance, and the other is the exploration. And my interest in rehearsal is the exploration. Preparation for performance will happen anyway. The costumes will continue to be built. The actors will continue to drive their lines. The, 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 the play will eventually get staged. But what... what, what What's not so predictable is the exploration, is the actual today's exploration may not be tomorrow's, and it may not even, it may disappear into the ether. And whatever little sliver is left that will take us into tomorrow is all we hope for. If we, if we end up a day all about preparing for the performance as opposed to actually using the, the the creative energy of the room, to simply be in that room together to work on that particular play. If we're always saying, well, this is how it'll be in the future, you never get that chance to, to, to properly explore. And if somebody walks in for half an hour, the actor immediately, there's an audience, the actor will play to that audience. Immediately. It's inevitable. It's a, it's, it's a Pavlovian response that actors have. An audience, that play to them. And then they're saying to themselves, oh, I, I wish that... I, because they they're, they're only seeing me here in this little bit, but if they'd only seen me ten minutes ago, I was better in that bit. So they start to try and be better in the bit because that person is watching. A closed rehearsal allows them to explore. If somebody's there all the time, it's like part of the furniture, you get used to them there. There isn't, when, there is no sense at all that they're, that they're being watched. And that's what, that, that exploration in rehearsal, that saying, I'm going to try to do this, and, and it happens, and then, oh, that was awful, let's try it again another way. And, it, and it's all about the trying, the being, not about when we get on stage. Because the process is divided into, into three very distinct sections. One is the table work. You work around the table, you listen to each other's voices, you hear the play for the first time. You finally then do a sort of, a, as I do, a sort of preliminary stage in which it comes out of the actors, not out of me. 
Then the second part of it is, is putting the player on its feet so that, that we can actually start at the beginning and end at the end and nobody bumps into the furniture. But if all, uh, that process, that middle process, is crucial. It's crucial that it comes out of the actors, that it's not an imposition. You do this, you do that, you do that. It has to come from them. The work around the table is much more led the way a teacher would lead or the way a director should lead. But the work in the, on the floor has to come from actors. I never block. I don't believe it. I never, ever say, you've got to be over there, and you can't be over there. At that stage, emerging from the work, the actors will find their place on stage. They're not stupid. They do know that they must eventually be seen, and they will find it. I find if you, if you do what's called a blocking rehearsal, it does that. It blocks. It blocks the actor. It makes them, you know... Emotion, it mentally blocks Mentally them, blocks Creatively blocks Creatively blocks them. And they... You know, they mark on their script XL, I mean, and that old-fashioned, uh, you know, XUC, US, yeah, all of that. <laughs> and that becomes the, the thing. They, they, they relate the line to the move, as opposed to the line coming from somewhere within them. And if they move on it, fine. Now, when you get on stage, and this is where the process has to be, be telescoped, because you don't have that much time on stage in technical rehearsal, but if you, when you get on stage, that's the point at which staging becomes um, dominant. So the first stage is around the table, get to hear the play. Second stage is allow the actors to discover the play, to discover who they are in it, and guide them wherever you can. Give them the freedom in, to, to, to define, to explore, to, 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 to be. And when you get on stage, then you can say, no, you can't stand in that place because you're, 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 you're not going to be seen. Why don't you move two inches to the left or two inches to the right? Or why don't you take a move up stage and then so-and-so can down. And that, that becomes, and it becomes much more um, creative then, because they then are, are, are the, the moves are not the, the key thing. The moves are just to be in the right place. They're not a key, and they don't bear any relationship to who um, the, the, the people are, the, the characters are stronger for not having felt the pressure of, of uh, staging. And dear, at that point, are you kind of creating your own stage pictures, or, or Putting people in places that not until I see the I, I work the, the technical rehearsals are a hugely important part. I love them. I absolutely love text. A lot of people go, oh, I've been there twelve hours sitting. Directors generally like I love actors the text. I think actors like them too. And if, if they're any if they've any sense, actors will like them. But I always say at the beginning of a text, look, this is going to be long. It's going to be slow. It's going to be boring. Get over it. Get used to it. And secondly, don't you know when you're going through a scene, you can't just do it for the tech. Do it for you. Do it for something that, that allows you to find it. And, and if they do that, they deepen and strengthen their performances in tech. And they're suddenly going, wow, yeah. Instead of just going, oh, I have to stand here in this light. Oh, the lover says this light focused. Oh, boy. I mean, and, and if they don't do that, if they're going, say, let's go back on that again, they continue to work. And I continue to direct. I continue to come up and say, and, and we work. But that whole period, whether it be a day or four days, or six days or 12 days, that's the time when the production comes together on Baltimore. That's the time when it works. Not in the earlier stages. You can't tell. In the early stages of rehearsal, you have no idea. And you should have no idea. If you say, oh, it's wonderful, it's going to work. You know, it, it, it's, I've always said that, you know, to, to a large extent, it's, um, it's, it's so like baking a cake or 
wonderful dish. You get the ingredients together, you do all that you need to do. The actual cooking of it is when it makes it, when it, when it either happens or doesn't. And it's that, it's the pressure you put, the timing, the amount, and, and that period of tech rehearsal, that's the time at which the, uh, the play either works or doesn't. And I've seen plays go from rehearsal room, brilliant run through in a rehearsal room, brilliant to disaster on stage because that period of cooking is not properly modulated and organized. You have to, to, to my mind, the director has to, the tech, be so alert, just never, ever lose focus. It's the time, whatever about in a rehearsal, sit back, let the actors work, but in a tech, the director has to be absolutely focused down to the last detail. I always get very ratty with, with technical people who don't do their jobs. I, I don't, don't you know, I just get ratty because that's the time at which we want to see the play. And if, you, if I'm not seeing, if the prop is not ready or it's, you know, something is not there, I'm saying, when am I going to see it? When can I make this judgment about what this is? And, and if, if they can't tell me, then I get quite cross. Because that's, that, it's the time when it, when it happens. That's the time. And then you go into, and thank God for previews, which we mostly have now in the theater. Thank God for them. Because you use the time in previews then to continue the editing process, to say to an actor, you, you know, I mean, we've been doing it all this week with Summer Night Stream. There, there's more reaction available on that line if you take more time on it or give more time there to that. It's those little itsy bitsy details. That's that what you're use. learning from the audience. All the time. I, 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 when I'm watching a play in preview, I don't watch the play, I watch the audience. Well, I listen to the play, but I watch the audience. And I, I, I speech the other day with one of the actors, and I said, you don't know what that means. She said, it's clear to me listening to you that you don't know what it means. And if you don't know what it means, I'm never going to know what it means. And we went through it again, and she, she, she it was an entirely different speech. It's, it's so much about that relationship, actor and audience, and you learn from the audience. I mean, the days when we used to open plays cold, which when I started, we opened uh, three weeks rehearsal and we opened on a Monday. There was no previews, there was one dress rehearsal and you opened cold to the press. And, and uh, inevitably the work was, was awesome. Inevitably. Now we've much more, I mean these longer rehearsal times, no substitute for rehearsal. I, I have no patience with directors who say, oh I can do it in four hours a day or I can get it done in three weeks. I just have no patience with that. There's no substitute for us. Rehearsal is when the work gets done. And, and eight hours a day, four weeks is a minimum that one can really, and you live, eat, sleep, breathe the play for the other uh, hours of the, of the it, it has to take people over, or else it's not going to work. It's, it, it, it just isn't. It's, it's the nature of, of what makes this this art form so fascinating is that it is an obsession. It has to be an obsession. Uh, if it's purely something that, well, we get it up and we do it, and we, then, then people should move into a different medium. And I think the medium of film, though it has its own particular needs and necessities, and it's a different medium, is much more a, a medium where you rehearse the scene, rehearse the scene, you get it on, then it's on, and you move on. Theater, every rehearsal is about 
finding another layer, deepening, shaping, making the, 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 the scene more active. Good. I want to open this up to uh, our audience here and see if there are questions they have. We regret that this question was inaudible on the original master tapes. We're going to go directly to the answer. It's the, that's the process and the, the time when, um, when it's most fun. Um, I, I, I like to think of myself as, a, as a, an actor, as a director. I like to think of myself as somebody, because of being an actor, I've been an actor, uh, and, and still regard myself as an actor, even though I direct mostly now, but I, I still regard my, my first calling as acting. And uh, uh, when I, you know, I listen to a scene, and, and, and I find a, I try to find a language that doesn't intimidate, that makes the actor feel supported rather than confronted. I don't believe in the notion, and I always say, you know, any note I give is, a, is, is, is not a criticism. It's something to support what you're already doing. So whatever the actor, you know, whatever the choices the actor makes, uh, those choices are valid. I don't think there's such a thing as a bad choice. The choices that the actor makes are valid. Some are more valid than others, and it's that editing process of of helping the actor to understand that, you know, there was, a, there was an example of something recently that happened in our rehearsal. The actor did a wonderful reading of a line. But the next time he did that speech, he didn't do that reading. Because somehow he had made the choice instinctively. It hadn't really resonated with him that the choice was a valid one. And so he moved on to another one. And I, I went to him after that, or in the course of that, said to him, you change that? And I interpreted how I had read the choice. So I said to him, you know, when you made that choice of, uh, it, 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 it was actually in, in Oberon speech, the, the, uh, the Iron Tongue of Midnight had struck 12, uh, lovers to bed, it's almost fairy time. The line, it's almost fairy time. Now because in our production Oberon and, and Theseus are played by the same people, it's the Theseus speech, um, they're played by the same people. What Tim Gregory did was he said, with a kind of a chuckle in his voice, it's almost fairy time, as though he, Theseus, couldn't believe in such silly things as fairies. Where, of course, we knew that in his nighttime guise, he was also Oberon. And it was a wonderful choice because it sort of implied that the rational man doesn't need this other side. But we knew from the play that, in fact, he did. And I said to Tim afterwards, that was a wonderful choice because it gave me such a distinction between your two, the two characters you're playing. Now, it had been a totally instinctive choice on his part, coming out of his knowledge of the character, but it wasn't a strong enough choice instinctively for it to stick. But by saying it to him, the next time he did it, he now brought the added dimension of knowing, not only is this the right choice, but I know I can play on it. So, watching and listening for the way in which an actor reads a line, and then working with them to sometimes to, sh to bolster up that, or sometimes to say, you know, that choice that you're making on that line really is taking you in the wrong direction because of A, B, and C. Um, I don't impose, I just do not believe that the director's job is to tell the actor how to play the character. I just don't believe it. The character must come out of the actor. If you cast well, that's, you know, it's, I'm getting back to my analogy of the cooking. If you choose the, 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 the right ingredients and the right measure of those ingredients, then invariably the cooking will be much more successful. And I don't believe it's the director's job to say to an actor, 
this is who the character is. It's the director's job to work with the actor to help them to understand who they are within that character. And, and, and you know, um, so often people talk of putting, of, of a character sort of coming, being put on to the actor. And as we know, that's not what it is. The actor has to strip away. It's all about stripping away and finding the core of that actor. And that sometimes can be painful in some roles. In other roles, it can be joyous. You've got to be there to help them do that, to guide them down that very careful runway before takeoff. If, if you're not there, as the, again, that analogy is the air traffic controller, they could take off and in a different direction. And you do have to be there to do that. But you're not, it's not the job of the director, nor is it proper for the director to say to an actor, the character is this, this is who the character is. How does the director know? The actor, as an intelligent, sentient being, knows who the character is and should. You work with them to help them so that one actor with the other actor doesn't, that the same world exists. And that's where, as I say, 99.9% .9 of the time you get cooperation from together as an ensemble feeling. You can occasionally get the one who thinks I don't care about the other side. Not in my experience with, with the majority of actors I've worked with. Um, what I like about revisiting great plays is the opportunity to explore them further and further. To um, work with different actors to find solutions to the same problems. Uh, it, it's all—it's kind of happened more than than I planned it. If you know what I mean? Juno um, and the Peacock—I've done it several several times. In some stream, I've done several times. There are a number of plays that I've come back to again and again. Not. Not always because at that particular time I say, oh, I must have another, do another Midsummer Night's Dream, but because the opportunity arises. And, and, and I'm a great believer that you go with whatever the fates do. You don't, I, I've never planned a career, and, and never. I've never planned what I want to be or where I want it to happen. It's always happened. And to some extent that's true of the plays that I direct. I, I, I chose to come back to Midsummer Night's Dream a couple of years ago because I, I looked at the Guthrie stage and said, this is, this is a place for Midsummer Night's Dream. This could be fantastic here. And uh, so that's why that happened. And then this production came because I was so taken with the idea of a new theater devoted to Shakespeare that when Barbara asked me, I said yes. So it, it's very often been, been chance rather than that. Now, but, but once that chance has occurred, I, I do enjoy um, the, the deepening of a knowledge of a play if I, if I really like it. Some plays I will never go back to again. Never. Just, I, not because necessarily they're bad plays. They're, I think, like an actor in a role, there are certain plays directors do very well, and there are certain plays they don't. And I've learned over 30 years my limitations, and I've learned what I can and can't do. And there are some plays I don't do well. I, I mean, I just don't, and so I keep away from them. Well, I mean... I don't do musicals. I couldn't. I, I tried, and I was just a dismal failure. I think it's such a great... I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of musicals. I love musicals. But I, 
I, I think it's a it's a style and an approach that requires a, a very different kind of, of detail. My work is, is the detail with the actors, is the sort of thing I'm talking about, uh, identifying choices and confirming those choices, eliminating others. That sort of detail, in, in the broad sweep that one has to have in musical theatre, it doesn't have the same. So you've got to be a much more of a uh, an organizer and a coordinator, working to create. I mean, the, 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 the great, um, the genius of Hal Prince, for instance, the absolute genius the man is. Um, I couldn't do it. Um, Beckett has never, ever appealed to me. I can understand that Michael Colgan, my good friend, has created the Beckett Festival, he's brought to Lincoln Center, and he just says, you're wrong, you're wrong, it's a blind spot. And it is, it's a blind spot. Clearly, he is one of the geniuses of the 20th century. Not for me. <laughs> I mean, those plays where people wander up and down for four minutes and then the curtain comes down, I don't get it. And I'm never going to get it. I go along out of loyalty to my colleagues and friends who do them, and I just go, so there are certain plays like that, that that just don't get, and I try and keep away. Shakespeare, I would do Shakespeare out on in, on Navy Pier in a snowstorm. I would work on Shakespeare. Maybe not. <laughs> I I would work on Shakespeare anywhere because and on any of the plays because whatever that imagination is, whatever that it just speaks to me. Oh, what does uh, Midsummer Night's Dream uh, say to you? I mean, what, what appeals to you about that? Two different things. Um, it's a play about growing up. It's a play about young people who need to come to terms with who they are. And that's been a passion of mine for a long time. I, I started a drama school in Dublin in the, the mid-1980s, and I've been very passionate about developing and working with young people since I started 30 years ago working in the uh, children's theatre. A great love for watching, seeing people grow and develop. And this play is about that. It's about um, the, the need for young people to discover who they are as opposed to who their parents want them to be. Um, that the, 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 the forest is a forest of imagination. It's a place where you have to go through. You suffer pain, you suffer humiliation, you suffer all kinds of things that we call puberty um, and that, that they, people have to go through in order to find balanced place in the world. And the second thing that this play is about is about theatre itself. The whole notion of mechanicals putting on a play, the whole notion of, Puck says at one point, an auditor I'll be or else an actor if I see calls. In, in every scene in the play somebody is either observing the scene or playing a part in the scene. It's about the celebration of the process of theatre. And when at the end of the play the fairies come and bless the, uh, the, 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 the house that the lovers in. He's also, they're also blessing theatre, they bless this place. And, uh, that excites me. I love the notion that theatre is celebrated in such an immediate, direct, exciting way by Shakespeare in this play. I come back to it again and again. I also happen to think that it's one of the funniest plays ever written. It's a hysterically funny play. And, and, uh, that appeals to me. I love comedy. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I think that the um, the role of the lovers has changed since I started to do it. I think these, these particular four actors have found layers that uh, are quite wonderful to watch them grow into. Um, I, I think the uh, each production has been 
unique to itself in many ways. This one is much more, uh, in a way, more streamlined than some of the others. There's a, there's a sense in which some of the magic, we know how it works now. And we've just made it work, as opposed to trying to find out how it works. Um, I think the other, this production, as opposed to the last one, it was in Minneapolis. Um, the whole role of Titania has changed. This, as, as Ellen has played it, has become much more. Uh, in, in, in Minneapolis, it was a she was very much Mother Earth. She was very much a figure of the of the forest. There was a sort of solid the forest was there that the fairies came to in some kind of Eternal way. Here, it's found a much more sexual um, uh, role, and that that has deepened and strengthened the relationship with the global. Um, so there are a lot of things that we that we've deepened, but essentially, um, so I, I first started to work on the play ten years ago when I did a production for the acting company in New York. We took out a tour. It was a workshop production that we rehearsed over eight or nine weeks, and uh, then took it on a tour. And the, the, some of the ideas that started generating in that production have just grown and grown and changed. Then I did a production in Stratford, Ontario uh, in 1993, and that production um, brought new dimensions to it, including Keith Thomas, who's the composer, and John Stead, who does all the flying and all of that stuff. Both of those elements came into it in Stratford. And then we did it in the and now we're doing it here. So each one has brought different, different aspects to it. And now I'm about to start again on Monday. Take them on a tour in Minneapolis. We're doing a 70 city tour of it with the company. There, they've already started for us. My associates started. I go in Monday and start. Um, yeah. My question is: Is the American actors so common? Shakespeare become a high concept theater? What do you say to your actors and the first few persons when they come to you and say, "Okay, what's your?" Exactly what I say to you. They, I mean, if an actor said to me, "What is your concept?" I'd uh, reach for my gun. Um, my view is that it, that uh, you know, as I describe, though there is, for, for instance, in *Midsummer Night's Dream*, there is a, a strong visual content. It's clearly uh, it comes out of uh, a visual imagination that the designers and myself. In each of the productions I've done, the performers have changed the shape of the show. And so even though there is a, quote, concept, unquote, um, it, it, the starting point is with, still with the actors. And if they make choices that are not the same as the ones that were made by the actors in Minneapolis and also made by the same as the actors in Stratford, that doesn't matter. That's not a, an issue for me. There are many things. Indeed, um, John Stead, our associate director, who does the sale of flying and all, physical work said to me the other day, there are some things you've left out of this. And I said, no, there are some things that are different because these actors didn't make those that same choice. He said, but you could get so-and-so to do what, because that, that was a bit that really worked. And I said, but it wouldn't be his bit. It wouldn't be his bit, so why would he do it? He, he must find his own way of doing it. And there are some things that were in the Minneapolis production that were not on in this, that were hilarious, that people were screaming with laughter. 
they're not in this. And the reason they're not in it is because they, those actors didn't come to those conclusions. They've come to different ones. Now, there are some, I think, quite wonderful moments in this that the actors have found. But the starting point is always with the actor. If it isn't, if it becomes about the director imposing a character on the actor or business on the actor, then it'll always feel like <clears throat> the actor is a puppet. It'll never feel to the actor like they inhabit and own the play. <clears throat> and and that's, the, that's, that's at the heart of what we do, is making the actors own the play. If, if we don't do that, then the audience are never going to own it, because we're gone. As I always say to, you know, to designers and to everybody else, we can sit in the pub all night and, and have a few drinks. The actors have to go out there and do it. Eight performances a week. They have to be alive in every moment. How do they do that if they haven't really absorbed it and made it their own? If it's something that's imposed on them from outside by a director? It's not. It, 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 it really has never been in my view, and I can't emphasize strongly enough how, how passionately I feel about that, that the director's role is to make the actor's own piece. However they do that, it's not to impose on the actors a production that they Never. Okay, I, because I know some directors do, and obviously you fight against that. So, what's your dialogue? I, 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 in some ways, it's hard to, because I'll be honest, I look at a play and go, oh, this play is about grief to me, or something, because of the truth, this play is about a loss of morals, whatever. Maybe that's. But you see, I think, that, I think you can say that, and you can be very happy to know that. But, but how do you translate that into actual practical? line-by-line line appreciation of that. If you give an overall patina of this is about mor the loss of, of moral innocence or this is about the, the way in which you know, I, I'm saying to you what, what excites me about this play is the growing up process for, for the lovers. But, but scene by scene, moment by moment, you have to, they have to oh, find that. And it becomes a conversation. I'm not sure what you want from the scene or whatever. And, and I, well, I, I start the scene, let them do it, and then stop and talk uh, about a particular line. Um, hear what they have to say, go move on, move back. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no set rule for how a rehearsal goes for me. I mean, sometimes if, if, a, if a Martian dropped into some of the rehearsals uh, and, and heard some of the conversation, they would definitely think, like, what food is this mortal to be? I mean, it is, it, 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 I, I sometimes have to stop and laugh and think, you know, are we really standing here grown adults? Nothing better to talk about than this. I mean, it's a, it's a, not by always a determined, dedicated, uh, keep the, 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 the nose to the grindstone kind of process. You can laugh, you can talk about something, you can talk about the game the night before, you can talk anything that, that just helps to feed into a relationship. You get then to say, oh, let's just try it this way, let's do it that way, and what about this? Oh, no, 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 that's crap. Get that out. Don't talk about that. And it's all, it's about forming those relationships. And if an actor feels comfortable enough to try anything with you as a director, then you've won. If an actor feels inhibited because somehow you're going to be critical of, you know, and everybody, nobody likes criticism. Everybody hates to be criticized. And actors know more than anybody else. So when you give a note to an actor, they immediately see it as something they fail to do, as opposed to something that they might do. And I try all the time, every time I'm giving notes to actors, to say, 
This is not a criticism of what you're doing. This is a way of helping you to explore what you're doing better. And, and uh, nine times out of ten, they go, but I didn't really mean, see, and, uh, and defensiveness, and, and how you break down that defensiveness is not 90% of the rehearsal, but it's certainly a good majority of the rehearsal is spent breaking down the actor's defensiveness and making it to a point where they feel comfortable with their choices. Always. Always. I love to do that. And, and I can do it when you're artistic director with theater, you can do it much more easily because you're there. As a guest director, it's not so easy. <clears throat> and of course, it's equity. Ooh, it's just insane. <laughs> you can only do four hours. You can only do an hour here. You know, and bullshit. It just drives me insane. Unions tend to drive me insane in that respect because I, I respect them and I absolutely respect equity and respect its, its need for the, because otherwise people can't be exploited. But for instance, you know, halfway through a run, I love to call a rehearsal and to have a good five-hour notes and running session. And you are amazed at the number of things that come up that people haven't said to each other, but they can say it through the forum of a rehearsal, but that have grown in a performance. And they'll go, yes, that's absolute. And then that night, the play falls asunder because everyone's playing notes. Play falls asunder, <laughs> but three days later, you see a much richer and deeper performance. You, uh, as an artistic director, hire a lot of different directors to work in your theater. What do you look for in a director that's going to bring a project uh, or production to your theater? Well, there's, there's a, I, I, I look in some respects for those who will, who will complement what I can bring as a director, someone who will have a different. Um, view and will, will come with a different perspective. But I also um, I, I'm, I'm not interested in directors who see actors as pawns to, in order to fulfill their own image of the play. So if a director comes and does a production and I feel that people that actors haven't been well treated or they haven't, then, then I'm not likely to employ him or her again. With some directors, and I've had a great joy in the last couple of years of working and David S. B. Both of them are young American directors who understand actors brilliantly and who understand the need for, and their work differs from mine and differs from each other's, you know, um, dramatically. But at the core of all of the, those directors that I admire um, is the belief in the role of the actor at the center of the production. And that has to be. I, I don't. I'm not interested in directors who see the actor simply as, as a, a way of expressing his or her personality. What advice might you offer to an early career director uh, as to uh, um, their own artistic development? What would you, ask, what would you say? To if you can do it, become an actor for a while. Actually have the experience of going out there and doing it. Many, many people who direct have never done it. Unless you know what the terror is of standing in the side of the stage at two minutes to curtain and knowing that short of your own death, there is nothing that can stop you having to go out on that stage and say those lines. Uh, then when you've done it, then you know what it feels like. And so you never ask of an actor something that they can't. That they, you, you do sometimes ask them things that they find difficult to do, but you'll always understand the, the pressures. 
And the other thing I would say to an early career director is, is uh, uh, get into as, as many situations, even if it feels, oh, I'm beyond being an assistant, get into that situation where you actually observe and watch. Because I, I don't know of any better way of learning than that. Because so much of what being a director is about is being human. It's interaction with people, common sense, dealing with schedules, knowing how to... to to, to shape a day so that it feels productive. All of those things, you, you can't learn those from books. You can't learn them from um, theoretical studies. You can only learn them from, from applying what you feel instinctively to a practical situation. Okay, thank you. Uh, this has gone by so fast. Uh, it's like, I can't believe it's, uh, it's 20 minutes to 12. It's, uh, it's been terrific. Uh, I think we're going to have to end up now. I know you have to get on to your so just uh, join me in thanking Joe. <laughs>